Welcome to another episode of Back and Forth with Blue Ridge Wealth Planners. My name is John Vandergriff. I'm one of the owners and wealth planners here at Blue Ridge Wealth. I'm joined, as always, by Zach Hill, who is our portfolio management slash operations team lead. And that's all I'm going to say about that. So, all right. Zach uh, doesn't want any more titles than that. So, <laughs> uh, But no, today what we want to do is introduce a topic that I think is, is a very good blend of uh, Zach and I's backgrounds, uh, both you know, education-wise, but also professionally, uh, talking about the topic of behavioral finance and the rising popularity of that, but also what it is and how it practically impacts uh, some things. And then in the later part of our episode, we want to talk a little bit about confirmation bias, which is a part of behavioral finance. It's not mm-hmm. exclusive to behavioral finance. Um, <laughs> But, right. you know, we'll we'll obviously hit that and, and talk about some uh, real-life applications of that. So, uh, so to introduce it, uh, obviously, there are two components of this discussion, the behavioral finance, the behavioral side, which is more of a psychological viewpoint, uh, the finance side, obviously, the financial side with investments and decisions around that. Uh, and, and just so you all know, it, so you don't have to go look at Zach and I's bio, you know, my degree in college at UT was – in psychology, Zach's degree, both in undergrad and MBA, is finance. So again, talking about the behavioral finance aspect of that makes a lot of sense based on what we have gone through education-wise, but also you know just some of the approaches and things that we have uh, professionally. So you know, for a book definition, this comes from Investopedia uh, on their website. Uh, for those of you that are sticklers for definitions, uh, behavioral finance is an area of study focused on how the psychological influences can affect market outcomes. Behavioral finance can be analyzed to understand different outcomes across a variety of sectors and industries. One of the key aspects of this is the influence of psychological biases, which we will talk about today. So, but again, just seeing how people think about um their money, what's going on in the world, and how it affects the decisions that they make in a non-book definition yeah. answer. So, you know, with that being said, Zach, talk a little bit about your background um, and how behavioral finance has been something that has kind of risen, I guess, yeah, it's, uh, in, in the it's last really little bit. So. Um, so traditionally in economics, I think a lot of people have heard the terms, oh, supply and demand, and that's economics. And that really That is economics, but it assumes that things are always at what they call equilibrium. Supply and demand always equal each other, and there's a lot of assumptions that are made. And one of the most crucial assumptions in that, uh, in economics, is that people always act rationally. Right. And so over the last 20 or 30 years, there's really been just just a handful of economists that say, what if they don't? What if people don't act rationally? And so what we've what they've done is they've started to do some research and some studies to say, well, actually, people almost never act rationally. They don't act in their best interest a lot of times. Uh, and so they started to put some real research behind this. And so what does that mean is you start to look at as, okay, well, this this financial decision makes perfect sense, but this person is not making the decision that makes perfect sense. Why are they not doing it? Right. And so like we, we know just as humans, we don't always act in our best interest sometimes. We sometimes make decisions that later we're like, why did I make that decision? And so this the behavioral side of economics and finance really comes alongside of those that practical thinking and saying, I know that we don't make best decisions and here's why. And so, like you said, they started to name the, a lot of those decisions and a lot of, uh, you know, the differences, their biases. And so we've seen that that has actually been pretty well accepted in um, research now. I, there have been two or three 
Nobel Prize for economics given specifically to researchers in behavioral economics and finance. Yeah. And so that's it's, it's starting to really put practical application on things that we thought were only theory. And so as we look at look at this, you can say, like, well, what is that? How does this actually impact our day to day lives? So I wanted to kind of give a brief example of how things have shifted um, and how this has impacted everyday people. Um, and so Richard Thaler, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2017, he was one of the he's been one of the pioneers for using behavioral economics in the financial realm. And so he uh, started the idea and he started asking the question, why aren't people saving for retirement? It's a basic question that when you look at studies, you see people aren't saving nearly enough for retirement. That's one of the things we can improve financial uh, lives. I mean, for the better across the board is just save more. And especially, too, because it makes logical sense to do it. Yeah. You know, so it's it, not like it's a, oh, it's a hot topic and debatable. Right. It's like you need money to retire today. So why aren't people realizing that? Uh, right. really at any end of the spectrum. Exactly. So. You need to save more for retirement. You want to retire. Why don't you do it? So what he found out was he started doing a lot of studies and his end result to these studies were let's hone in on 401k plans and how do we get people to participate in 401k plans? And he actually kind of coined the uh, coined the phrase and the movement for auto enrollment of 401k plans. Mm -hmm. And so he found out that for whatever reason, if you just auto-enroll your employees in a 401k plan, they don't opt out. However, if you don't auto-enroll them, a lot of them don't opt in. So right. they just took whatever decision was given to them and said, well, this is what I'm going to do. And so I saw some studies. That's kind of one of the reasons he won that Nobel Prize in economics. And so when he won that in 2017, there was an estimation, and this was just kind of a back-of-the-envelope calculation, but that they said that Richard Thaler's auto-enrollment plan in a six-year period had saved uh, an additional $30 billion for retirees wow. in the U.S. And so it was like he's already in a six-year period started to put some practical uh, decisions around this research. And we see that, I mean, with that auto-enrollment plan, that's kind of one of the hallmarks there. Yeah, and I think, you know, going back to what you were talking about with the uh, background of the way that people viewed rational economics and then kind of the shift toward a behavioral movement of it, would you say kind of prior to that, the reason that people didn't make decisions uh, because of rational behavior was just because of a lack of education? Would you say that that's, that's probably the that's assumption that was made? That's definitely a big part of it. I mean, we've financial education has come, to long, come a long way in the last, I mean, 30, 40, 50 years. We're t I, the fact that we're talking on a podcast about behavioral economics right now is just something that was unheard of yeah. even 20 years ago. So uh, that is that is definitely a huge piece. I think the second piece is it's really hard t for people to act in their best long term interest. Yeah, is it's making those short term sacrifices to see the bigger picture. And economics just looks at all time horizons, mm -hmm. uh, all time. We have no, uh, there's no short. There is a short term and long term to economics, but it always operates in those in those facets. It doesn't, you know, we're it's not like a human who's like this is would be great if I could save thousand dollars right now but i need to pay my rent or something you know it doesn't yeah. have to make those decisions it just assumes it can use a calculation and say well this is the better financial decision for you you need to do that but people don't live in spreadsheets right and that's a tough thing to kind of balance there and i think that's a good point to make because you know if you go back even as far as 20 to 30 years ago the amount of resources that you had to educate yourself was not there you know like it is today because right. like i've said this to many people that have come to the office like now is the best time in the history of the world for someone to manage their own money 
when yep. it comes to the information that you have at your disposal, the ease of which doing it, the cost associated. So like, but yet we're in a period of time where you have like an overwhelmingly large amount of people that have not saved the way that they should. Right. Even with this abundance of knowledge that's at their disposal, you know, so you have to look at that and say, okay, well, the old uh, thought process of, well, if we just don't have education, we don't understand how bad it is. That's not necessarily true anymore because the education is available. It's just what's about the behavior of the people that causes them not to pursue it, you know, for whatever reason. And maybe it's the kind of immediacy or the lack thereof of saving Mm -hmm. for your future. Um, But I think all those things are important to analyze because, Again, you know, I think every person that goes through a, and this is probably why the popularity of this has risen, when, when we take people that have come out of business school, you know, or finance programs, mm-hmm. how the level of teaching them how it actually works in the real world is, is always right. there. You know, it's not like um, there's an overwhelmingly large amount of programs that are saying, here's economics and here's you know, financial portfolios. And then this is why a client, and I think we're seeing more of it because of the rise in behavioral finance. But, but when you look at like your education, there probably wasn't a lot of, um, why does a person not invest in this? Mm -hmm. It's just, how do we build this thing that accomplishes the standard deviation we need or has a great sharp ratio or, you know? Yeah. And that's what, and that's what we live in is we, as a finance person, you live in the spreadsheets and you make you know, you try to disassociate your personality from what the spreadsheet says. You're like, I don't, I, you know, if I'm trying to manage money, I need to look at what this thing says and I need to do it. And then as, you know, as you get out of that mindset and you get into the real world, you start to think like, gosh, I've, you know, me personally, I use this, I can use this example as I've got this massive spreadsheet that I use to manage all of my personal finances. And it tells me to do things sometimes that I just don't do. And I'm like, why did I not do that? That doesn't make any sense. Why did I not behave in this way? And even with me who went to school, I mean, I have six years of very specific finance education and now an additional five years being in the professional world and I'm still not doing this. Yeah. So I can't imagine people without all of that education, how they're making these rational decisions. And so that's why it's so important to have something that can speak into that and explain it and say like, well, this might be why. And, uh, you know, we can kind of explain this, but now that you're aware of it, that helps you make a better decision. Yeah. So you can put parameters in place. I heard, uh, I was listening to a, a different podcast, a uh, financial podcast, and it was a guy, he was refinancing his mortgage. And he said, I refinanced to a 15-year. And I was like, why would you? And he was like, because I realized that I had the money to make a higher payment. I just wasn't ever going to do it. Mm-hmm. He was like, unless somebody was forcing me to make a higher payment and pay off my mortgage early, he was like, I that money was just going to sit in a savings account and not do anything. And he, was right. like, and he was like, and I knew that, so I just tried to put a behavioral parameter on a decision that I needed to make to make me make the right decision. Right. So that's kind of what we're, I think what we're shifting into now is knowing what's going on and trying to make behavioral shifts like the auto enrollment to make us make better decisions. And I think, you know, coming from your world, which is more on the management side, like obviously there is psychological impacts to the way that you manage a portfolio, but coming across the line to the conversations that we're having as you know, wealth planners, financial advisors uh, to our clients, you know, it, it is almost, I don't want to say purely psychological, but mm-hmm. predominantly psychological to help people and sit down with them and understand what the disconnect is between what they say they want and actually positioning themselves to do it. Right. You know, because that, that, 
not everybody can just see that as a one-to-one and say, oh, well, yeah, this makes perfect sense with this because you've got historical uh, experiences with investments. You've got um, confirmation bias, which we're going to hit on in just a little bit. Uh, just all these kinds of things that people are now identifying as you know, major um, opportunities or major areas that we look to to make decisions and and not just individually but collectively uh and so as we look at that trying to understand what those mental blocks are and how you go about breaking those down but at the same time not disabling somebody's ability to make a decision is really the whole conversation and it's kind of like a a dance almost where you've got to be able to lead well uh and and you know most of the time when you're dancing with somebody i didn't plan on this being my metaphor here, but you know, when you're dancing with somebody, it, if you've got a strong lead, you can have somebody who doesn't even understand the dance and they can do it because right. the lead is the most important part. And sometimes we have to serve in that capacity. Not that we don't want to educate our clients, but sometimes there's not enough time or enough communication that can be done to make somebody see the X's and O's of what needs to happen. You just have to speak into what they're experiencing and why they're not making these kind of decisions and, and mm-hmm. kind of rectify that first. So, yeah. And having that knowledge helps, I mean, will help you make that better decision as well. I mean, it's, I was, as you're saying that I was just thinking about this investor study that I found and I pulled it up to, so we could have the exact numbers, but Dalbar, uh, which is a research Institute does a study every year and they came up with a longer term study that they produced that said, over the last, tw- over a 20 year period ending in 2015, the S and P 500 index returned, an average of 9.85% per year. Mm-hmm. The average investor who held the S&P 500 index fund over that 20 years returned 5.19%. Right. So you return almost half of that. Why did you, you were in the S&P 500. How did that even happen? And it is because they're tr- you're trying to bridge that gap of, I'm, I'm even investing in the right thing. I just can't, you've got to have somebody coaching your behavior to say, well, don't sell it at this time. Just hold it and don't, you know, because investors are always going to make trades or do something that's irresponsible with that portfolio or if they just would have held it or done something that was more rational, they would have had better outcomes. And so that's where I think it's important. You know, your background comes in. You're like, well, this is good. This is a good, this is what the study says. Now, this is how I can actually apply this to to someone's life and to their financial situation. Well, and too, like you've also seen the studies done where, you know, if you take a 20-year period of time and you pull out the 10 best days and then the 20 best yep. days, what the returns look like. And and what people don't understand is that the best return days in the market happen after some of the worst days in the market. Exactly. But when do people want to sell out? At the, after the worst days in the market, not after the best days. Yep. It's we not saw like, that this year. 2020 is the perfect example of that. Yeah. It's not like people say, oh, I made 10% today. I'm going to go ahead and sell that because... I'm happy with it, and I'm just going to move on. Right. No, people say, man, if I made 10% today, what will I make tomorrow? Exactly. And it's like that that greed you know, feeds into this conversation we're talking about and one that we'll kind of introduce and, and go into after our break with you know, yeah. confirmation bias. So, again, as we look at this, you know, we're going to have some resources on um, both the podcast page here uh, with some different notes and, and kind of wrap-ups of some of the things that we talk about. But also, if you go to planforeverything.com, you can get some more information on the shows that we have, but also uh, get some information about talking to us if that's something that you're interested in, uh, whether it's you know going through kind of a proper process or just having a conversation on you know some of what we talked about today. That's 
you know, kind of what we look at. So, you know, after a, a brief break, we'll come back on this episode of behavioral finance, talking about one of the areas of that, which is confirmation bias. So look forward to seeing you in just a little bit. Are you nearing the age of retirement? Is your 401k not looking the way you'd hoped all those years ago? Retirement is supposed to be a time to relax, a time to live. Here at Blue Ridge Wealth Planners, we strive to provide that service and opportunity. We can help you form a plan that will maintain and grow your retirement savings so that you can achieve what you envisioned when you originally set out on this journey. To see where you sit and what you can do to stand again, visit planforeverything.com. That's planforeverything.com. Blue Ridge Wealth Planners, let us plan for everything so you don't have to. Welcome back to our episode of Back and Forth, where we are talking about behavioral finance. Uh, you know, like as we always say, my name is John. This is Zach. We're going to continue our conversation where we introduce the topic of behavioral finance. Now we want to talk a little bit about confirmation bias. And so like we did um, last time, I want to talk about just a dictionary definition of that, and then we'll unpack it. So uh, confirmation bias is the tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. And so as we look at that, this is not something that is exclusive to the investment world uh, because whether you realize it or not, your social media news feed, news feed, uh, with quotes, yeah. uh, is basically the algorithm that says what is going to further confirm some of the things that make you you and allow you to see the world in a certain way that may not be a perfect picture of reality. And I think that's right. a very fair statement no matter which side you're on. You right. know, so it's because you can unfollow, unfriend, block anybody. You you don't like what they say; they're done. Right. They didn't confirm your exi- your pre existing notion for whatever the topic at hand was. Right, and and when you block that person, Facebook or Instagram, yep. whoever probably learns. Okay, they didn't like this influence, so I'm going to further feed them things that more mm-hmm. confirms the things that they are choosing to follow in this yeah. example. So, and I think this this is exists in every facet of our lives. I mean, we see this now is that our lives are so curated to give us what we already want now. Mm-hmm. Netflix will suggest TV shows based on what you've already watched. They know right. what you like, they're going to give you what you like. They're not going to give you anything you don't like. And so we were talking about this. I mean, it's it it's always kind of existed a little bit, but uh it's really become heightened in the internet era. I mean, you only go you only go to websites and news you know, news channels, you watch those because you like those people. And that's not a bad thing. Inherently, some of this stuff is not bad. You just have to be aware of what's going on right. when you when you do this. And like you said, I mean, these, these news feeds are specially curated for you. Um, but I think this is one of those that it just transcends both personal and private life and financial life very well. Yes. Where you're, you're on the app, you know exactly who you follow. You just need to understand that's an echo chamber. But then when you go to, to finance... People are also doing the same thing there. Um, you can, I, I was just, we were talking about this, and I, I can give you economic data that shows you anything you want to see. I, right. can, I can give you the right data points. That, and there's a lot of people out there who that's what they want to do is, you know, they want you to believe that the economy is good or they want you to believe the economy is bad. So if I said to you, John, the second quarter GDP was down the worst it's ever been in the history of the United States, and the unemployment rate is higher than it's ever been. Yep, I'm pretty, shocked. That's I, that's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's I can I can keep doing that, and I can say the S and P had the fastest bear market it's ever had in the history of the S and P 500 this year. Mm-hmm. It dropped. We had a ton of volatility this year. We had days where the market was down over five percent multiple times. Um, I mean, I can show you. There's there was all, no earnings growth in the S and P 500 this year. People were not. I mean, 
a, a few companies were, but b- by and large, most of these companies shrank. And then for the and, year, the S and P was up what sixteen yeah, percent somewhere yeah, in that so, range. So, but I, I want to talk about the negative stuff. Don't I? That's what right, I want to do. Is I want to I want to sit here and tell you all these negative things. So at the end of the day, if you were negative, you're like, "Yep, I believe everything he said." And if and I can be like, "Great, we have a negative view." What did yeah. the S P five hundred do? It was up double digits this year. Right. The whole twenty twenty. I mean. Now you say, well, unemployment was up the highest it's ever been. Guess what? It also shrank from that from that it, yeah. one to the next to the next month, the most it's ever declined. Right. So I can go back and I can say, well, the S and P now uh, was up eighteen. I think it was eighteen percent was the final year number around then. So just under twenty percent, the S and P five hundred grew. Well, guess what? The third quarter U.S. GDP was up thirty three percent. So we shrank thirty percent, and then we grew because it was a, it's a quarterly number. So it looks great because it just shrank, but I can just tell you these things and well, actually things are pretty good in the economy or things are pretty bad and you just have this feeling and you can look and pinpoint all these data points that tell you one way or the other. And I think the the dangerous thing where we start to see this in application with people is, you know, when we go through a conversation with a prospective client and we start introducing them to new things, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's insurance, alternatives, you know, I always tell people when you go and do your own research, do your research about what you research. And so it's like, you know, you have, because the internet, like you said, has opinions all over the place. If you take the topic of annuities, which is one of the most polarizing uh, investments out there, and it's not as good or as bad as anyone says, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's just, right. um, But there will be people that hate annuities. And the reason is they are not licensed to sell them. There are people that think annuities are the best thing you could ever do, and that's the only thing they can sell you in the financial right. world. And so, you know, you've got to do your homework and say, is this person a fiduciary? Are they positioning this from an unbiased position? And if so, then I've even got to take the step further and say, is this allowing me to confirm the decisions that I already want to hear, or is this offering a, a I think sometimes very beneficial thing, which is maybe an opposing view of why I view this right. this way, you know, because again, I mean, you've got to have the, um, and I want to say the assumption, but, but if someone is talking about these topics, they should be an expert to some degree on the information, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think sometimes we maybe assume that too much <laughs> because, yeah. you know, anybody can turn on a recording device and do a podcast today, you know? Right. So it's not, there's no barrier to entry there. Um, which is interesting that we're saying this on a podcast that we've developed here. But um, but as we look at that, I think it's important to um, be aware of that, like you said, uh, so that you can see, are you getting the information that's needed to make mm-hmm. a good decision? And what is a good decision largely depends on what you want to happen and not being so blind to those steps that you actually take them right. instead of, paralysis by analysis, which again is very common um, and something that we fight on a daily basis because, you know, from our seat, there there has to be a balance of the amount of information we give somebody and then the amount of information that uh, allows them to make the decisions they need to make. That's always a, a really hard line to cross because, again, some people n- can handle a lot more information than others can. And that's right. not because they're smarter. It's just because maybe they have more experience with financial conversations or maybe their background suggests that this is, you know, it's not always more, you know, the investment world thinks that the more money you have, the more risk you can take because you're educated. That's not true. I mean, you can have a lot of money and know nothing. <laughs> you know, right. you just inherited it or you had a situation where, 
Um, or you got it in a way that you didn't need to know about finance. Right. That's, I mean, right. It's very you know, common. It, you were very good at running your business, but you didn't. You just kind of saved this money, and you yep. didn't focus on what it was invested in. You just invested it. Yep. So, you know, as we look at that, we always need to make sure that we're coming back to the conversation of, you know, what information is out there, but then on the kind of bigger level, how is that information guiding me to make the decisions right. that I need to make? Right, and that's what I mean. You made a great point there and that everybody you know especially when you're introducing something new you attack you you try to educate people but you want to educate them on all sides and I think that that's even our, even on this podcast is one of our goals is to try to present things from all angles because I you and I both have very different backgrounds but even I mean even knowing all these things sometimes I get in the habit of only looking at one side of the equation and so just the awareness of knowing that this is that confirmation bias exists mm-hmm. that you're always looking for something that confirms what you believe i think just that awareness has personally made me want to branch out and try to educate myself on things that maybe they don't make any sense i try i used to just only read stuff that talked about index funds i loved index funds and i just want to be passive i don't want any you know that i'm i'm easy and then i was like well well if i know that maybe i need to start educating me on why people don't want to do that why there's got to be some you know, I tend to believe that not everything, like you said, is all bad or all good. Mm-hmm. It's all, um, to me, my personal experience, almost always somewhere in the middle and a little bit of both. And so knowing that has, I think just kind of should push you to want to educate yourself on things that you, um, you don't, that don't seem natural to you and don't, don't seem to make sense. Doesn't, I mean, they may be bad that you might be right, right. but it's just knowing that you have that bias and that that bias exists. I mean, this, I think this exists for everybody. This isn't something that's just unique to certain people. It exists yeah. across the board. And you've got to be careful too, because, you know, if you want to keep going down that rabbit hole, rabbit hole, it's one of those things where like you can realize that people probably specifically market those people are aware that are their own confirmation bias and are branching out to something that's totally opposite. So like the yeah. example you used, if you've got a propensity to use index positions, then somebody is probably crafting information that says, if you love index funds and you're trying to, you know, get the opposing side, right. this is it, but where are they trying to steer you? Exactly. You know what I mean? So it's, it's one, and they may not be that open, <laughs> you know, about what they're doing. Um, but I think that's where, where we're at. We have to realize that there's always going to be some level of confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's no way to truly eliminate it because eliminating a confirmation bias is also creating an, uh, another confirmation bias, right. you know, and it is the lack of trusting any information, which is where some people are today. Right. You know, I think you've got so many, uh, conspiracy theorists out there that don't trust anything that they hear that people just leak stuff to those people and it's like they just send them down a, you know a path where no one has ever been just to see if they can make somebody do it you right. know and, and that's a sad place to be in but you know largely when you look at behavioral decisions and confirmation bias the thing that we have to be careful of is you know, with a lack of fiduciary obligation in the financial world for a majority of advisors, we have to believe that if someone is not acting in a fiduciary capacity, you know, it's largely going to be, you know, what impacts are either going to benefit the company they represent or right. the them personally the most. And I think that is something that I don't want to say, you know, tense or, or kind of colors the way that people view the financial world because 
they take that attitude and apply it to everybody. You know, it's like, okay, well, how are you yep. gouging me here? You know, where, where's the, the catch? Where's all this? It's almost more suspect uh, from our conversations, you know, and, and I'd say even from a management standpoint because of churning and things where right. people uh, have had that in the past where that, by and large, isn't as much of a concern anymore, but that doesn't mean that that bias has been put to rest. No, exactly. Yeah, you know, so it still exists. So I think we have to be, we have to be of the opinion where I think constantly learning is never a bad thing, you know, and, and but constantly learning so that we can erase some of the incorrect information that we've gotten in the past right. uh, can be very beneficial in just an overall enjoyment of your life, but also so you can make good decisions, you know, with your money. So, I mean, so as we look at that, obviously, you know, we could spend probably an entire season on bias, you know, confirmation bias, different examples of that. And we may do that in future episodes. But as we look at that, anything else that you want to point out, um, you know, as we kind of wind down on our time today on confirmation biases specifically or, you know, anything that you've seen maybe that is uh, something where like an example of how that's been used in the financial world for those that are kind of wanting a more specific example than just social media bias. Yeah, no, I... I mean, it, it, like I said, it, it exists on in the news and media and all these other things, but it, it can exist in your personal life as well. And so one of the things that I was thinking about is we, as we are helping people transition into retirement, one thing that we do run into a lot is someone who has worked for the same company for 40 years and all their retirement is in this company stock and they yep. think it's the greatest stock in the world. Well, guess what? If you worked for Walmart for the last 30 years, you might have a great 401k you worked in Arkansas, Walmart headquarters. They gave you a bunch of company stock. It's the greatest company in the world. Well, guess what? Walmart has not been the greatest company in the world for the last 30 years. Probably Amazon or Apple have, one of the two. Yeah. Uh, so you've missed out on all these things, but it's, uh, if you have something that's in your 401k and you have an emotional tie to a company, then that, those are some of the ways that this will actually personify itself as right. far as in your day-to-day life is that confirmation bias is – it's going to be really hard. It's probably going to be a very emotional decision for you to let go of that stock in your 401k. It's probably, you know, that was one of the things that we talked about when I was in school was they said, if you ever get this scenario, do not hold company stock in your 401k for the company you work for. Because if you get laid off, that company's in financial trouble. So not only did you lose your job, 401k just lost a lot of money probably as well. Yeah. So we talk about those things and it's like, well, how does this actually make sense? Well, that's one of the ways that it personifies itself is if you start to believe that the that and it might be a great company. Walmart's still around, very successful. It, it's not a bad company. It's yeah. just when you lock yourself into an example like that, where you only be, only believe in this one company, and you this is your this is your world, then you ref, then you really don't see the bigger picture and what's going on. And so yeah. that's one of the ways where we as you you talk to somebody and you try to get them to understand like this is a great company, it's a great stock, but if you work there or you've you know you've got all your money in this one position or something like that. That's a scenario where you really need to research and say, okay, what else can I actually do with this money? How do I need to invest this outside of just this one very specific worldview? And I think what's interesting is, you know, from actual conversations that we've had people or with people, you can take that example and put it in a third party scenario where somebody will, let's say we talk about a scenario and this person worked for Apple, they have all their money in Apple stock, they're looking to retire. You can paint the picture that is exactly what someone is walking through and then make the rational call in that scenario for them not to be that heavily invested. But then whenever it comes back to them, they can't make that decision. 
you know, it's just they can't separate from it because mm-hmm. it's been so good to them over the past. They've been they wouldn't yeah. have this money if it wasn't for the success of the company. So you've also got to be careful with confirmation bias of going the polar opposite direction and having some people just constantly bring up, um, you know, stories like GE when Jack Welch yeah. left, you know, and, and talking about companies where their stock has significantly dropped. Um, you know, like you said, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a better way is, you know, people use this all the time in the financial world, but diversification is a good thing, right. you know, if nothing else, then to reduce the amount of risk that you take. Um, but, but again, both of those examples are things that are true, right. you know, but it's just, again, what, what is best for you and your situation will largely drive what decisions you should make. Right. It's just what barriers are in the way emotional, which again, emotions are one of the biggest uh, contributors to how we make decisions. And so in, in understanding that, I think can allow us to return back to more rational decision making right. if we just are aware that that's the way we're wired. So, yep. and seeking out—I mean, like you said, seeking out all all the opinions. I think uh, not to be too cheesy, but that's why we go back and forth. <laughs> that is exactly right, Zach. So, so again, as you look at that, a couple of things as we look to wrap up here. Obviously, we're wanting to spend a little bit more time this season introducing the topic of behavioral finance, but also uh, digging into that a little bit and talking about the different components because it is very timely, but also very relevant. Uh, but in the meantime, if you are wanting help with these discussions, you know the best thing you can do is reach out to a third party. I would largely recommend someone who is a fiduciary, you know, whether it's us or someone else, just find someone who is going to say, yes, I will work in a fiduciary capacity for you and go talk to them about what type of decisions you need to make, whether you're at the beginning of your work life, the end of your work life, right in the middle of retirement. Again, lots of different things that are happening in those positions, but at the same time, you need to make sure that you're not just making decisions based on old or bad information. So. So again, that's one of the reasons why we do this podcast. The other is just to, you know, help people with what they have and, and see if we can help them in the way that we've been trained. And so hopefully you've enjoyed this discussion. There will be many more in the future. But as far as this episode of Back and Forth, that's all we have. Investment advisory services offered through Blue Ridge Wealth Planners, a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Madison Avenue Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, MAS, and Blue Ridge Wealth Planners are not affiliated companies.